serve as lead pastor here at Midtown. Glad you're with us this morning. Quick shout out to our AV team, led by Jeff Grogan. I think that's the fourth video we've shown in Soma's history. Uh, we're probably the most low-tech, uh, predominantly millennial church in the city, so uh, way to go. Um, we are going to jump right into our teaching this morning, and if you see on your worship guide, uh, we're talking about something that's very important to the heart of God, but um, may or may not be important to you, depending on where, you, where you're coming from. We, uh, and I want to encourage you if, you, if you weren't here last week, to go back and listen to her sermon. Um, it, was, it was long, but it was kind of an intro and really describe why we're teaching on this, but just to remind you a couple reasons why we're talking about justice and reconciliation as a church. Um, we really want to reconnect the gospel of Jesus with the work of justice and reconciliation. As we said last week, the Bible talks as much about justice and reconciliation as it does about prayer. So if you're a Christian and you think about what it means to be uh, a spiritual person, a believer in Jesus, you must care about justice and reconciliation because it's at the heart of God. And we spent last week basically laying out God's vision for uh, the good news of the kingdom of God coming among us and being here in Indianapolis as it is in heaven. And we said this is, and it has to be, a gospel issue. That's why we must care about it. We also want to reconnect justice and reconciliation to spiritual formation. We want to see this as, uh, and, and understand that our, our cultural identities, right, how we think about race and ethnicity, we are discipled, just living in the world. Um, Beverly Tatum, who's a sociologist, and she wrote a book called Why Are the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria? She talks about the idea of, if you go to the airport, kind of just the moving sidewalk. She says, if you're just kind of living in America, whether you recognize it or not, you're moving along a sidewalk, right? There's a moving sidewalk that moves you towards certain ideas about race, and about class, and about ethnicity, and about lots of things. And so we're being discipled always in a way to think about our race. For most of us, though, it's unconscious and it's hidden. Um, and so we want to bring those things to the surface and say, what would it look like to, to, just like we do in every other area of our lives, to bring conversations of justice and reconciliation, and in this series, specifically racial justice and reconciliation, back into kind of our program of discipleship and to see what it looks like to practice the way of Jesus together for the life of the world. And that gives us our definition then. Uh, we use next slide for justice and reconciliation. This is about restoring people and places and systems from a place of hostility to harmony with God and with others and with creation. That is probably more than anything else. I was talking to my wife about this yesterday. What I want us all to remember as we talk about this. This is not first and foremost, just an issue. This is about people. And if we forget that, right, because we treat it as an issue, because it's kind of a thing out there, it's political, and it's social, and it's legal, and it's historical, and we're going to talk about all of that through the course of this series. But at the end of the day, the most important thing you must remember is this is about people created in the image of God. All people created in the image of God. But specifically, this is about learning, to use Jesus' language, to authentically love our neighbor as ourselves. We said last week that the reason that God hates injustice and the reason that God loves justice from the Psalms and from throughout the Bible, um, the reason God hates injustice and division is because he loves the suffering ones. He loves people created in his image who are victims of injustice and he longs for their wholeness. And if we forget that, if we lose sight of that, it's just easy to intellectualize this discussion. It's easy for this to be abstract and hypothetical and just historical, but not about the real people that we live with right now or don't live with right now. So the question we want to grapple with this week is, how specifically did we get here? How do we get to this place of experiencing injustice and division? How do we get to a place where Dr. King said that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America? How do we get to that place? Seemingly living in a world in a city still divided by race and injustice. Let me start before, so we're going to talk about some hard things today. I'm probably most anxious about this topic, this sermon, than any of the other four that we'll talk about. We're going to talk about the history of Indianapolis a little bit. We're going to tell our story as a city and as a country. And the reason that I'm anxious about that is because I didn't grow up in Indy. 
Uh, I grew up in the South, right? This evil slaveholders, right? Like that's, you know, Northerners, this isn't, right, a problem for us. That's how we kind of tend to think about our racial history. But I, di- I didn't grow up in this city, and, um, and when we begin to talk about and tell stories about the country, but specifically about Indianapolis, um, these aren't just ideas. These are family realities. Like these are your parents. If you grew up in Indy, these are your parents. We're talking about your grandparents. We're talking about your cousins, people you went to high school with. We, we've been talking about this as a staff for months, and I've just watched tears, watched anger come out in these discussions. Because to, to realize and to reckon with our past is to reckon with our own souls. It's to reckon with the soul of our families. And so I want us just to kind of just breathe for a second. Maybe I just need to breathe for a second. And, and just be aware that this isn't about guilt tripping. This isn't about throwing the church under the bus. This isn't about throwing uh, Indianapolis under the bus. But it is about asking hard questions like, how do we love a city that has such a filthy racial history? Right? Some of us would argue we can't love it. We need to just burn it to the ground. Others of us would say we need to love it by just denying or ignoring things that have happened in the past. And we really can't opt for either if we're followers of Jesus. So let me just, before we jump into that story, give us a biblical framework for thinking about injustice on the whole and division on the whole. Um, I I see at least three dimensions that we need to acknowledge in this conversation and that will, I think, provide a helpful framework for us because oftentimes in these conversations, especially in the past, Christians talk past each other because we're using different language and we see through different lenses And none of us, it seems, have the full picture in terms of the broad range of categories that the Bible uses to describe uh, the source of injustice and evil in the world, which then leads to the source of racial injustice and, and ethnic injustice and evil and division in the world. So we don't have time to do a deep dive, but I just want to get these categories up. I created for you a Venn diagram, just to help me, hopefully it's helpful to you, for you to see the three categories that the Bible talks about when it discusses injustice. And my hope is that for all of us, we can, I know you can't read all that, I'll explain it, that you would be able to raise your level of awareness of all three realities and how they play together because they are interconnected, interdependent. You cannot talk about evil without addressing all three of these. And if you attempt to, your solutions will always be superficial. They will always be incomplete. So three categories that we have in the Bible for the sources of injustice. Let me just do these quickly. Next slide. Personal sin, right? Personal sin. Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sin against God. They, they rebel against God. They choose to be God and to play God instead of surrender to God. Sin is unleashed. This dark power of sin is unleashed in the world. And we see all kinds of consequences then. It's an infection. It's a virus. It's a cancer that infects The human heart and is passed down from generation to generation to generation. I would define personal sin then as the internalized, specifically related to race issues, the internalized racial attitudes and beliefs and values ultimately rooted in sinful self-righteousness. When wholeness with God was broken in Genesis chapter 3, wholeness with ourselves and others is broken as well. And this leads to the rest of the story of the Bible. That's why Jeremiah says the human heart is sick, it's deceitful, it's self-oriented, self-preoccupied, self-righteous. That is, the root of all sin in the world is self-righteousness in the human heart. And it's catastrophic in terms of our relationships with other people, particularly with other racial and ethnic groups. It unleashes a story of pride, superiority, of fear. We, see that, we saw that last week in the story of Peter, fear of the other that's different than me, that doesn't think like me, talk like me, vote like me. Greed, idolatry, superiority and inferiority, hostility, right? That's what you see in those passages in Romans and Ephesians. All of that plays into then how we think about others, how we approach others, how we show up in spaces with people who look and think differently than us. There's a natural suspicion and paranoia that is as old as Genesis chapter 3. This is nothing new, but it does take particular shapes in different times and places. So personal sin, 
Social sin is the second category. Social sin I would define as both interpersonal, so this is the attitudes of the human heart that begin to work out in how we treat other people, interpersonal, but also institutional behaviors, systems, and norms that embody, preserve, and advance racial injustice and division in the world, right? Because sinful human beings are leading sinful institutions, we now see that embedded into institutional norms and behaviors. And we see this throughout the scriptures, interpersonally, right in Genesis chapter 4. Cain kills Abel, the first act of violence in the Bible we see. The book of Exodus, right? You've been with us for the past couple months. The entire book is about systemic and structural injustice. We see um, institutional injustice denounced throughout the prophetic ministry of the Old Testament and in the life of Jesus as well. But specifically, we see in places like Amos and Isaiah and Jeremiah, God openly denouncing the legalized oppression of the poor. He openly denounces economic injustice, people amassing large amounts of wealth and property at the expense of the poor and and the mistreatment of immigrants and refugees that flow from that. Corrupt leadership, bribes, unjust employment policies that lead to certain groups of people profiting at the expense of others. This is what people refer to when they're talking about systemic injustice, structural injustice. Just give you a definition here, or racism. The cumulative effect of racist feelings, beliefs, and practices that become embodied and expressed in policies and rules and regulations and procedures and expectations and norms and assumptions and guidelines and plans and strategies and objectives and histories and records and the like, which accordingly disadvantage the devalued race and privilege the valued race. Now, we're just talking about the Bible here. And I say that because I think this is helpful for us to be able to understand these categories. Um, Especially here, um, every piece of sociological research on the white church, right, on the white church indicates this is one of the biggest blind spots for white Christians in America. And and I, I know the room I'm talking to is predominantly young, so I would say this is even a generational divide in the white church to some degree. But I say this because it's helpful for some of you in conversations with your parents to realize this is at play here. This wasn't taught in the church for long periods of time. Social and structural injustice was ignored or at least minimized in favor of talking in more personal terms about sin. If you're older and you're a parent or a grandparent, understand this is what younger people are getting upset about when they rail against injustice in America. It's not just the heart is sinful, it's that the heart has become institutionalized. In their book, Divided by Faith, Michael Emerson and Christian Smith, after doing a massive, the largest sociological research on the attitudes and opinions of white evangelical Christians in America, and I think it's the largest study in history, say say this in conclusion, both quantitative and qualitative interviews. For most white evangelicals, sin is limited to individuals. Thus, if race problems, poor relationships result from sin, then race problems must largely be individually based. Absent from their accounts is the idea that poor relationships might be shaped by social structures, such as laws, the ways institutions operate, or forms of segregation. Although much in Christian scripture and tradition points to the influence of social structures on individuals, the stress on individualism has been so complete for such a long time in white American evangelical culture that such tools are nearly available. You hear that? They're reaching for a tool that's not in the toolbox because it's not been taught. That should lead to some compassion and understanding where people are coming from. What is more, white conservative Protestants believe that sinful humans typically deny their own personal sin by shifting blame somewhere else, such as on the system, i.e. government and media in particular. So you see how we can talk past each other. Personal, social. The third category that I would argue most people miss altogether is the supernatural, the demonic The Bible talks about spiritual powers that are governed by the devil himself that instigate and intensify and metastasize injustice and division in the world. 
the evil one is called in Revelation chapter 12, the accuser and deceiver of the world. He's talked about in John 8, Jesus calls him the father of lies. He's come to steal, steal and kill and destroy. He's called the ruler of the world. He has demons at his disposal who have been deployed to also deceive and to kill and to destroy and to aggravate injustice in the world and how we interact with one another. Ephesians 6, Paul says, our primary battle in this world is not flesh and blood. It is against rulers and powers of darkness. And John, 1 John 5, he warns, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So I give you these three categories because I think these three dimensions are all in play. They all converge to form what the Bible calls this present darkness, Ephesians chapter 6, or the present evil age, Galatians chapter 1, or what we'd simply call this evil world system that we live in. It is a matrix of evil that is greater than the sum of individual human evils. So do people, are, are people evil? Do they make evil choices? Yes. D does that result in a social systems that then are evil and perpetuate evil? Yes. Does Satan then enter in and intensify and aggravate those and metastasize those? Yes. All are true at the same time. And what happens and what my experience in the church has been as both a non-Christian and now as a pastor is that churches like to organize their life and their doctrine around either one or combinations of these different dimensions. So some churches are all about the personal, the personal and the spiritual, but they don't like to talk social. Some are all about social, but they don't like to talk about the personal. And most everybody denies the reality of the supernatural. They don't even talk about spiritual warfare much anymore, and particularly when it comes to racial injustice. Broadly speaking, we have collective blind spots. And again, broad, broadly painting the church here. Conservative churches tend to see the world through the personal dimension or the spiritual dimension. Progressive churches tend to see the world through the social lens. But here's the thing. We need all three of these to make sense of the complexities of racial injustice and division and to ensure that we don't talk past each other in conversations around race. Okay? All right. Now, let's move on to how do we see these dimensions play out in the history of Indianapolis? How do we see these dimensions play out in the history of our country? I want to spend a few minutes talking about history. Now, some of you might ask, why are we talking about the past? This is the most common reaction to get when we talk about the history and the story of Indianapolis. Why are we talking about the past? Past is the past. Doesn't have any impact on the present. It's over. Jim Crow's over. Segregation's over. Slavery's over. Let me just say this. I don't talk about the past because uh, I hate this city or I hate this country. I love America. I love Indianapolis. I'm not from here, but I've, I've grown to love it. We said we want to be a church that loves the city, that, that loves Jesus and loves the city. We, we do and are trying to do that. But one of the biggest barriers that we've encountered in bridging racial gaps at our church is we don't have a common set of facts that we're operating from, right? Um, especially in the north. Now, I'm speaking as a southerner. There's a little bit of bias because we think we're in the north and that was just a southern problem, right? Like some of our elders grew up in the school systems here and literally said we were taught to think of the south as the evil racist and the northerners were just kind of like indifferent and just watching it all go down. But here's the thing. America and Indianapolis have a, and there's no other way to put it, a disgusting record of racial history that has produced a problematic, racialized, and I'll use that word intentionally and define it in a minute, a racialized society in the present. And it is a confluence of personal sin, social sin, and supernatural sin. And this is why I think it's so important for us to be able to have a common set of facts. George Erasmus, who was an advocate for Aboriginal peoples in Canada, said it like this, and I think it's the best way to say it where common memory is lacking, where people do not share in the same past, there can be no real community. Where community is to be formed, common memory must be created. 
can't be honest about our past, we have no hope of moving towards a different future, inside the church or outside the church. And I think we see this kind of transparency about the past. Let me go Bible here so you don't think I'm just teaching history. You see this in places like Acts, the book of Acts, the Apostle Paul, who was an ethnic minority in the Roman Empire but was a Roman citizen, is able to, throughout the book of Acts, talk very openly and freely about both his racial identity, his ethnic identity, and about his, his violent, sinful past in order to not just glamorize it or demonize it, but actually to give glory to God. Acts 26, Paul before Agrippa, before uh, the ruler of his day, he is talking about his past. Notice he talks about being a Jew, about being a Pharisee. He talks about that all throughout the New Testament. Philippians chapter 2 and 3 talks about it in 1 Timothy. He's not ashamed. Romans 10, he says, I would cut myself off for the sake of my people. He, He can freely talk about my people and his ethnic identity without making it his ultimate identity. But he puts it in the proper context and says, I'm not ashamed of my identity as as a Jew, as a person with brown skin. Paul could freely also, go to the next slide, verses 9 through 11, talk about his past sins without shame, without self-righteousness. He was able to say, this is who I was. I lynched people. I murdered people. I was a terrorist. But praise be to God. He's rescued me. Called me into a ministry now to go out to non-Jews and share the gospel of Jesus. He could freely confess his past sins. He could talk about his ethnic identity and even leverage his national citizenship. Remember, he appeals to Caesar as a Roman citizen in the book of Acts. He can leverage that for the sake of the gospel. All in order to give glory to God. One of the interesting things about Paul's story as well is when he actually gets converted, Paul's behavior as a terrorist made the early Christian community suspicious and cautious to embrace this oppressor. It should tell us something about, like, he needed ambassadors. You remember who came to his defense? Ananias and Barnabas. They stepped in and said, no, 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 God's done a work in this man's life. But there was a hesitancy to receive him in based on past sin. We wonder why certain people are suspicious. Because they're wounded. Because they know better. We need more ambassadors. We want to say, no, here's what God's doing in our city. These are safe people now. It isn't easy to believe people who've oppressed you. Another scripture that came to my mind as I was thinking about our story is Luke chapter 10. The parable of the Good Samaritan. We often wonder why could a Levite priest, why could all these good Jewish religious people walk by a man sitting on the side of the road of another race? Well, I'll tell you why. Because for centuries, for millennia, that's part of what it meant to be a good Jew. There, were, there was social architecture, religious architecture that made it such that it was easy for them to walk by. Same thing you would have done had you been a good Jew in those days. There are reasons why we walk blindly past these issues. Because we've been shaped by our past. That's why Jesus is always pointing out the similarities between the religious leaders and their quote-unquote fathers. He's saying, you're just like your fathers. History has a way of repeating itself. So that leads me to this kind of setup here for the quick little story about Indianapolis is this. We must confess honestly the truth about the impact of the past on the present if we're going to live redemptively in the future. We must confess honestly the truth about the impact of the past on the present if we're going to live redemptively in the future. Still with me? All right, let's take a breath. What is our story? It's amazing to me how many people grow up in Indianapolis and don't know this story. 
I tell this as an outsider. You've lived this. In our MC missional community this week, we talked about people and we shared stories of people who are literally saying, like, I, I never knew this. I grew up here. This is my life. I've always wondered why, as a white person, I don't have much interaction with minorities, even though I live in the city. Now, if you're going to understand the story of Indianapolis, you have to understand this is a microcosm of 300 years of beliefs and laws and practices of European-American history. So Indianapolis doesn't just show up in 1825 in a vacuum. it's, It's been conditioned. People who founded, our founding fathers and mothers, were conditioned to think and live a certain way for 300 years, if you go back to Columbus, before establishing this city. So I'm assuming that maybe you know that history of America, and I'm not going to go into detail about that because so much of this is predicated upon understanding American history. So remember, in 1619, a Dutch trading ship landed off the coast of Virginia with the first African slaves. What started as indentured servitude to provide Europeans with raw materials from the Americas eventually gave way, gradually gave way, to the forced transatlantic slave trade of more than 10 million Africans. Now, here's what's important to remember. This did not start off as chattel slavery. Those ideas weren't even there at at that point. It was actually a matter of convenience. They needed people to work, indentured servants to work. But very quickly, that turned into, by the mid-17th century, slave codes, which mandated slavery for life with no hope of emancipation, a deprivation of legal rights, and defined enslaved Africans now for the first time as chattel property on the same level as livestock. So how did we get ideas about race and ethnicity? If that's not the way that it started in the 16th century in terms of those first 20 that came, how did we get to race-based slavery? Well, it's helpful to think of race as a little bit different than ethnicity. Ethnicity refers to the way people identify with each other based on shared culture, such as language and history and ancestry and nationality and customs and food and art. Now remember, when Europeans first colonized America, when your, some of your great-grandparents came here, there was no concept of race. It didn't exist. There was no white people and black people. There were uh, lighter-skinned people that we now call white who were British, who were Irish, who were Dutch, who were French, Italian. Race developed as an ideology. It is a Western human social construct, or you could say fiction, that developed in the 16th and 17th centuries to distinguish groups of people on the basis of selective physical characteristics such as skin color, facial features, and hair type. It developed, uh, and and I'll use the words of Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative because I think it's a helpful way to think of it, um, by a narrative of racial uh, racial difference where not only do we notice and recognize racial and ethnic differences, but people begin to assign value based on those racial differences. Quickly, a social hierarchy emerged that began to de-emphasize the differences between various European ethnicities and to describe white people as a human collective that was inherently superior and culturally dominant, especially to white people, to black people to people of color. This narrative of whiteness, this ideology developed to help white Europeans feel comfortable with their ownership of other human beings. And, quite frankly, also, we don't talk about this a lot in Indiana, to wipe out indigenous native peoples. Go to Camp Tecumseh if you want to learn more about that. Jamar Tisby, in his book, The Color of Compromise, says this, race is a social construct. There is no biological basis for the superiority or inferiority of any human being based on the amount of melanin in his or her skin. The development of the idea of race required the intentional actions of people in the social, political, and religious spheres to decide that skin color determined who would be enslaved and who would be free. Over time, Europeans, including Christians, wrote the laws and formed the habits that concentrated power in the hands of those they considered white while withholding equality from those they considered black. 
And by the 19th century, this was enshrined in laws using those very categories, white and black. I don't have time to go on and talk to you about, and I'll just throw it up on the screen, the Declaration of Independence, right? From the very beginning, we see them referring to the merciless Indian savages. We see this in the U.S. Constitution with the three-fifths compromise that said black people are not actually fully human beings. They're three-fifths people. But I want to skip ahead to Indiana. And I just want to tell a couple of pivotal events that I think establish this in our own story in which we need to come to grips with if we're going to see healing happen in the future. It started with the Indiana Constitution. Many people don't know that in 1816, our very first constitutions, uh, very first constitution, African Americans were specifically prohibited from being allowed to vote, from being allowed to join the militia, to testify in court against white people, or even marry white people. And that one specifically about interracial marriage was on the books for 150 years before it was taken down. Indianapolis formed in 1825. It, it called, it, she called herself, our founding fathers and mothers called us the all-American city, which in those days was code for the white city. They said there's, here in our city, and I quote, there's almost a total absence of the foreign floating element. Throughout the first century of our existence, we had the smallest immigration populations in the Midwest. In 1831, a bill passed that black people had to post a bond of 500 people to even move to the state, which is about $10,000 in our current money. In 1851, we had our second constitution, and the public voted 8 to 1 in Marion County to ban African Americans and mulattoes, half Irish folks, from coming to Indianapolis. The ones who were already here and settled had to register with a witness, a white witness, in Negro registries until the 14th Amendment made that illegal. Many people are not aware that the Ku Klux Klan for a season was headquartered in Indianapolis in the 1920s. They actually were headquartered at a remodeled Butler sorority house on the east side of Indianapolis before it relocated to Midtown. In 1923, the largest KKK meeting ever in the history of our country took place in Kokomo, Indiana. 55,000 marched from the fairgrounds downtown just a few years later in one of the largest marches in the history of the Klan. There were estimated to be 300 to 400,000, thousand dues-paying men and women. That's about a third of the white population at the time. Here's the sad thing. Many clergy donned those same hoods. Pastors were not immune. A governor during that time was a Klansman. The mayor was a Klansman. The state legislature was full of Klans people or Klan-backed people. The school board was run by the Klan for decades. And specifically related to education, Indianapolis schools were desegregated in 1877. A.C. Shortridge actually was one of the first to desegregate Shortridge, which became later Indianapolis School, became later Shortridge High School. But then they resegregated the schools in the 1920s on the basis of a medical reasoning um, that African Americans were allegedly had a disproportionate amount of tuberculosis, probably caused somewhat by the slums they were living in on the west side in a neighborhood called the Bottoms. That's why in 1927, Crispus Attucks was built as the first all-black high school. It made Indianapolis the only city in America to resegregate after integration in 1927. Butler University that same year limited the number of minority students to 10 per year. In 1949, a bill was passed desegregating Indianapolis schools, but it was still another two decades before it was actually implemented. After 10 years, 10 years after this desegregation bill, Broderpool High School right in our neighborhood had 1,700 white students and one black student. 
1968, all of this culminated with the U.S. Justice Department under Judge Dillon suing the IPS for racial discrimination, and three years later, in 1971, finding the school system guilty of segregation de jour or segregation by law for decades. Every decision that had been made zoning-wise over the past decades was found to be racially motivated, and segregation was actually put out there as the reasoning. Last piece, Unigov. Unigov is something that many people don't know about, but part of what has transformed Indianapolis and made it a model for cities nationally is the concept of Unigov, which is why the whole county is part of the city of Indianapolis. That didn't used to be the case. We had the city of Indianapolis, and then we had the suburbs of Marion County, which were essentially the townships right outside of the city limits. On January 1st, 1970, the city of Indianapolis and the surrounding suburban Marion County merged into a single political entity called Unified Government. Supposed to stem the tide of fragmentation and decentralization and unite the city and the suburb and the rural countryside into a shared common destiny. Now, it did. It created this common identity and a common tax base, which was instrumental in providing resources and opportunity more evenly throughout the city than the old system. But it did not solve issues created by redlining and other practices. It did lower some of the barriers, and it did spur economic growth for the city, but it also had a massive adverse effect on race relations in the city. A massive. It's hard to understate what it did psychologically to the city. It did not, here was the big thing, it did not consolidate mostly white and affluent township schools with mostly black and lower income city school districts. And what happened is it appeared, it appeared to many that wealthy white people gained political control over the city without having to give up social control of their schools. That's how it felt to many people who were living in the city. Over the next 10 years, forced busing after the ruling in 1971 would lead to double-digit growth rates in the seven surrounding counties, including 50% a year in Hamilton County. Additionally, police and fire and welfare and social service provisions remained in the hands of local townships, blocking the transfer of resources to impoverished inner-city communities. Now, this is all historical fact. This is all legal fact. You can read about this in books like Sacred Places. The Polis Center has a number of resources on this telling the story. And we could go on and on and talk about housing. We could talk about restrictive covenants that weren't lifted until almost the 1970s that said that black people cannot buy houses in certain neighborhoods. And we could go on and on and talk about these issues and the impact that urban renewal had and displacement and redevelopment uh, of African Americans had on race relations in the city. But my point is, all of these things come together they come together and they form what Michael Emerson and Christian Smith in their book Divided by Faith call a racialized society. Notice I didn't just say a racist society. I said a racialized society. Here's what he means by that. A society wherein race matters profoundly for differences in life experiences, life opportunities, and social relationships a society that allocates differential economic, political, social, and even psychological rewards to groups along racial lines, lines that are ultimately socially constructed. They're fictions. They're not real, but we do it anyways. Yes, there may be more equality of opportunity, they argue now, than there was 50 years ago or 100 years ago, but there are still massive gaps in outcomes. Why is that? Why? We need to ask ourselves those questions and not be content with superficial, ideological answers. And here's the thing that we, I just want to kind of begin to wrap up by just saying the church, the church was not exempt from this stuff. It's one thing to look at the society and point our fingers and say, yeah, it's just a racialized society. The church was complicit at every step of the way. Every step. We tend to think of Christian history just in terms of the brave abolitionists who helped to tear down some of the house of racism, and that's not untrue. But here's the thing, it is not the whole story. It is not the whole story. Matter of fact, you could also say that the church first helped build the house of racism that she later sought to tear down. 
Jamar Tisby, if you want to read about this specifically through each era from the colonial period through uh, the Jim Crow era, um, we could talk about how Christians debated whether or not black people even had souls back in the 16th century. If we should evangelize African Americans or not because they're not people. Pastors and theologians penned treatises defending the practice of slavery and the inferiority of black people both in the South and in the North. Baptismal vows, when a black person was baptized in a white church, they had to take a vow saying they would not try to free themselves because this liberation was only spiritual. George Whitfield, Jonathan Edwards, some of the heroes of Christendom were themselves slave owners and advocates for slavery and benefited personally from the practice of slavery in the South. We reduced the gospel message to a Christianity that could save one's soul but not break one's chains. Specifically in Indianapolis, the church was very involved in segregation as a whole. Not every person, but as a whole. In their summary, in Sacred Circles Public Squares, here's what the Polis Center writers have to say. Upper-class, native-born Protestant whites have long sat at the cultural core of Indianapolis. As the city's founding fathers and their heirs, this group controlled the city's civic and economic life for the first half of the 20th century. These individuals attended the same churches and social clubs, sat on the same philanthropic boards, and felt responsible for the direction of the city. Throughout the 20th century, at least one quarter to one half of the city's elite belonged to either the Columbia Club or the Indianapolis Athletic Club. And here's the key. They also shared religious orientation, mostly revolving around the most prestigious Presbyterian, Methodist, Episcopalian, or Baptist churches. They used these formal and informal relationships to transform Indianapolis. Now here's the conflicting part, for good and for not so good. Indianapolis mainline Protestants, that stronghold on the city for so long means that a good number of professing Christians were not just wearing hoods with eye holes. They were also voting. They were also sitting on boards. They were writing laws. They were financially profiting from and actively resisting the fair treatment of non-white image bearers of God. Largely, white churches reflected and reinforced the racialized cultural norms of the city. And here's the thing where this hits us and where we close. Although segregation has been largely dismantled, we can unconsciously perpetuate these same patterns institutionally, right? In the way that we show up now at church and missional community, where we plant churches or don't plant churches, how we think about where we choose to live or don't live. And we have coded ways of talking about, and I hear this all the time, good neighborhoods, bad neighborhoods, good schools, bad schools, just so we all know when we use words like those, what that has meant in the past is black schools and white schools, black neighborhoods and white neighborhoods. I'm not saying that's everyone, but I'm saying we must be aware of how we use that and how it's interpreted in our community and how it's been historically. When we think about worship styles, what we prefer and what we like, we can, we can perpetuate that. When we look at our churches and we see homogenous leadership, including this one, we see homogenous leadership, we can perpetuate those same things. When you look at the dearth of multi-ethnic uh, churches in the city of Indianapolis, you can count them on one hand. Like we are unconsciously perpetuating these same things if we're not careful. So what do we do with all of this now? Right? Do we just kind of feel guilty about the past? Do we feel shame? Do we kind of bow up in defensiveness and self-righteousness? What do we do? Here's what I want to just kind of put before you as an analogy. This is a, a family system we're talking about here, right? This is our family. Indianapolis is our family. America is our country. We grow, grew up here, right? This, this is us that we're talking about. And we've got to keep in mind, this is only a generation removed. Like these dates, like some of your parents attended these schools, Some of your grandparents sat on these boards. 
Some of us have family connections to decision makers who oversaw this thing happening. But this is our family system, and we can't act like it's not there. It's in our psychology. It's in our sociology. It's in our legislation and our laws. It's in our economics. It's in our housing. It's in our education. To pretend like hundreds and hundreds of years doesn't have an impact on the present is to say, if you're a victim of assault as a child and you're abused as a child, that that trauma has no bearing on you as an adult. That's crazy. We all know that it does. Everything about trauma research tells us that it does. We are imprinted by our families. We're not defined by our families, right? It's not our destiny, but we are certainly shaped by those realities. And so here's my encouragement to us as we think about our story and we talk about our story together as a church and we look towards the future and say, God, have mercy on us. Because that's what we want, right? God, have mercy on us. We have sinned. And we'll talk more next week about how we actually lament over that. And we're going to do that together as a church. But let me just say two things. Ephesians says we must grow up and learn how to speak the truth in love. And I think this is an opportunity for us to learn to speak the truth in love. First, to, to have a prophetic voice, which is what we talked about last week. The church must reclaim her prophetic voice. The prophetic voice starts with love. It must start with love. Martin Luther King said, where there is deep disappointment, there is deep love. Right? James Baldwin said, the reason I critique America so much is because I love her so much. It is okay to love this city despite our racist past. It is okay to love white people despite the racist past. It is okay to love cultures and ethnicities across the world because there is an infection of racism in every human heart. So to love is, is imperative for us. We must first love God, and then we must love our neighbor as ourselves. God loves racist people. God loves racist cities and cities with ugly racist pasts. Some people tell us we can't love America or Indianapolis because it's racist. Some people, other people, tell us we can't call America racist if we love it. The truth is we can love it and we can still call it racialized so that we can work for its healing. Right? Can we? We can still call it what it is and still love it. That's why God refers to people as a, as a, as a bride. He's a jealous lover. He can critique and he can call the prophets to critique because he's saying, you're, you're my bride, you're my church, I died for you, I love you, and I'm going to bring you out of slavery. I'm going to bring you out of oppression and bring you into my family and call you my own. We must love something deeply enough that we can critique it and we can work for change redemptively, which means working for change without shame. And there is so much shame in this conversation, even for woke activist types. So much self-righteousness, right? Whether you're conservative or not. The book Right Fragility, one of the challenges that he, the author issues in there, he says, um, we tend to think of this oftentimes in a place like Broderpool as just a conservative problem, right? Or those people who aren't woke problem. And he says, one of the greatest carriers of prejudice and racism and, um, and bigotry is progressive people who don't see their own self-righteousness. Activists who don't see their own shame, and I don't say that to take a position. I just say that to say we all have to be careful that we don't perpetuate this. We must be able to work for change, which means we must love it. Not as an idea, but love real people, like the real people who live here, who are still racist here, who are still prejudiced here. We must love it. I don't see a lot of love oftentimes in this conversation. I see platitudes. I see marginalization even from both sides. I don't want to be around a person like that. I can't be around a person like that. So we must start with love, and then we must speak the truth. Repentance starts with personal confrontation and confession and lament. I want to encourage you not to start raging out before we move out into the community to, to rage or to protest or whatever. To not start raging against the past or your family or your city or 
news channels or whatever, it's easy to hear a message like this and get self-righteous and to say, man, I can't believe this. But here's the thing that we see in the Bible. Before anybody, any prophet ever moves out to critique the people, they say, woe is me. Woe is me before woe is you. I need to see the injustice in my own heart first before I see the injustice in my neighborhood, in my in-laws, my parents, my siblings, my grandparents. Jesus has a warning about this in Matthew 23. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of prophets, He says, thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. He's saying, that's the kind of mentality that leads you to murder the prophets. The reason that you decorate the tombs of the prophets is because they're dead and they can no longer speak to you about your shame and your self-righteousness. Be careful. But we must confess. We must tell the truth. Jamar Tisby closes his work by saying this, history and scripture teaches us that there can be no reconciliation without repentance. There can be no repentance without confession. And there can be no confession without truth. Jesus said, the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. The truth about the evil that lives in your own heart, confess it. The truth about the injustice that lives in your own heart and relationships, confess it, agree with God that it's there. The truth that lives in the soul, embedded like a festering wound in the soul of our city. It's there. We must confess it. We must identify with it. We must show solidarity with it. And we'll talk about this next week, specifically from the prophets, is to say that's not just their sin, that's our sin. And we start with ourselves and we confess our sins. To be responsible for something doesn't mean to be guilty for something. There's a difference. But we must not suppress the truth. When we live in the truth, Jesus says, I will set you free. Let's pray. (sighs) Father, we want to be a people of truth. 